Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, to the Winter is Coming Game of Thrones podcast. I'm your host, Razor, and I'm here with Dan Selke, Corey Smith, and Richard Preston. And we're here to finish our Game of Thrones Season 7 wrap-up. It's our recap, and we're going to begin tonight where we left off two weeks ago with Episode 705, uh... The Queen's Justice? Eastwatch. Eastwatch. Oh, my gosh. What am I thinking? It's Eastwatch. All right. So getting right into Eastwatch, um, the big thing about the spoils of war where it ended is Jamie charges Drogon. He falls into the Marianas Trench and never to be seen from again, we thought, right? Like he's drowning. He's a one-armed man with a very heavy golden hand, uh, heavy plate armor. And he's sinking to the bottom of this very, very deep river. And the next time we see him, Bronn is dragging his ass out of the river, down, downstream from Drogon's fiery um, field of battle. So, Dan, I have to ask you, um, a little bit too easy? Or would you have rather seen um, a little bit of maybe like Jamie and Bronn having to duck dive and get their way out of the, you know, Work their way out of some trouble. And by the way, guys, Dan's making a sandwich. This is the first time this has ever happened on the podcast, so we're going to keep recording as he makes this delicious sandwich. Go ahead. Okay. Listen, David. <laughs> what I found irritating about it... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Look, just think about that. At, at the end of the day, nitpicking that, like, Bron and Jamie, oh, how could they have survived that? I mean, it, it is a nitpick. It's a, it's a detail. Like, I, I know that I, I knew that they weren't going to die. I knew that they were going to get to the other side. Um, and I can accept it. Right. So it was a river. I carried over by the river. And, but here's the thing. It, it, it's a nitpick, but I, I nitpick. Like, I, I'm a Game of Thrones nerd. I've become accustomed to a certain level of detail in the show. I, I just wanted something. Right. I wanted, like, a little thing. I wanted, like, Jamie underwater taking off his hand, or, mm-hmm. like, Bronn unhooking a clasp, or, like, a little shot of them getting caught in an eddy. I just wanted something. Actually, I thought about it. I think it would have been symbolically powerful if he had to take off his own hand, but then he lost it. Right. He's going from, like, Jamie golden hand to Jamie no hand again, and that's where he finds his real self. But, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, but I would have liked a little, of a, a, a little more... There, there. A little grace note to kind of bridge the gap there. That's how they no, ended the season, basically, fine. right? I mean, he's Jamie Nohand again. He covers his golden hand up. So, I mean, it would have been kind of nice for him to lose it right then. Uh, yeah, that's a, a perfect moment. And, and it would have helped explain how he was able to bomb on top of the water. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I thought it was a fun moment um, because the Braun and Jamie uh, back and forth, the witty banter is – Almost, maybe as good as the Tyrion and Bronn banter, um, except it's a little bit on a different level. Bronn just doesn't give a fuck, and he'll say whatever he wants to. I mean, he dropped a C-bomb on on, on, uh, on Jamie, and that was pretty hilarious. Uh, but, I will uh, say, like, the reason that I couldn't be too mad at it was because Bronn made me laugh, like, not long after. And right. I give a lot if, if Bronn's making me laugh. No, I agree 100%. Um you know, we talked about this, Corey Smith, on the podcast during the season, and we were like, uh, I remember Corey Phone, who isn't isn't here with us tonight because his allergies don't make him feel good. 
Um, he he didn't like it because he's like, look, Jamie Lannister is not going to die. It was a terrible cliffhanger. We all know he's not going to die. And I mean, obviously that that was true. But I mean, how did you feel about the the beginning of this episode, going from such an amazing battle that rivaled Battle of the Bastards to Jamie and Bronn popping up downriver without anybody noticing? By the way, like there wasn't any Ford scouts. There wasn't anything but Bronn and Jamie climbing up to the, to the to the side of the river and making their way to King's Landing. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty. I think I fall pretty close to what Dan does. I mean, it, it it is nitpicking, but it also it could have been you know fixed fairly easily. You know, stick them on a board floating down the you know a piece of the wagon train, something like that. They're floating down the river, no one sees them. A horse's okay. corpse because they kill so many yeah. horses. Right. You know, it could have been easily fixed instead of, yeah, like, I mean, I think Don was spot on. We knew Jamie wasn't going to die drowning um, in the middle of season seven, you know, um, maybe in a finale, but he's not going to die in the middle of a season. And, and not to mention he had a lot of unresolved things to do at that point in the plot. But, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that bad. And definitely Braun and Jamie's back and forth banter was hilarious. And Braun, you know, basically saying, like, look, no one gets to kill you until I get paid. Like, once, what, once I get paid, all bets are off. And I also liked his comment about how their, their, their partnership ends at Dragons attacking King's Landing. And then you can tell Cersei. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's like look, once the Dragons show up, I'm out. He's like... Because he says, uh, don't you mean we? And he's like, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> but like, Bron had a pretty good year. I will say that. I thought it was the, maybe was the a, best year since the fourth season for Bron easily. It was a low-key yeah. low best year for Bron. Well, he, did do, yeah, he didn't have a lot of screen time. But he, what, the screen time he did have, he ate it up. I mean, he was, he was just really good this season. So it was, it was good to see him earlier and more often in the season than we saw him. In season six, uh, Richard, as the unsullied of the podcast tonight, since ISIS isn't with us, um, how did it make you feel when Danny and Drogon? And we're going to get back to what happened at the at the battle because there's a big scene that happened. But I want to talk to you about this scene really quick. How did you feel when Drogon and Danny land at Dragonstone and John removes his glove and touches the dragon? And by the way, I don't know if you guys have noticed. I don't know if you, I know most of you guys are have have dogs, but I have cats and I'm a cat lover. And they've made these dragons very cat like in their in their reactions. And basically, Drogon starts purring. And closes his eye in a sign of like trust to John. He could smell the Targaryen blood coming off of John, don't you think? As an unsullied, how did you feel about that scene? Yeah, um, I did. Um, just one comment on the Bronn and uh, Jamie in the water. I thought that was a perfect place for for Varys the Merman to appear. It didn't happen. <laughs> um, that would have made the perfect explanation for them coming up perfectly fine, but. As far as John uh, uh, touching the dragon, yeah, I really got the idea, not having read the books past book one, um, that since he's a Targaryen, the the uh, Drogon recognizes him on some sort of blood genetic level, and I think it was a nice touch for the show. I thought they did it well. I thought it was kind of interesting the way they shot it, that Daenerys couldn't see what was going on part of the time because she couldn't see around Drogon's head, and I right. liked that nice touch. Uh, it kind of isolated her from them from their moment, uh, isolated her from their moment. So I thought it worked really well. I, I, 
I think it flowed well with the story. You know, everything with Danny and John is now opening up uh, really quickly in season seven, and everyone's been waiting for that since episode one. So I thought it was really nicely done, and, it, and I think they did a good job with it. And uh, I think it was it was a nice moment because uh, I don't think Danny suspects he's a Targaryen, but I don't think she quite knows what happened. That was really a good point that you made about. Um you know, Drogon recognizing on the blood on a genetic level and the fact that Danny couldn't see what happened. I like that you said that that took Danny out of their moment. Um, now that we know John's full Targaryen, he's a full legitimized Targaryen, um, and he's got a, a stronger claim to the Iron Throne than Daenerys does going through the Targaryen lineage. Um, it's neat that Danny wasn't a part of that scene, really. It was all a dragon and a Targaryen. I like that you brought that up. That's a great point. Um, let's go back really quick to the uh, to the Black Blackwater Rush and the, and what happened after that battle. Danny brings up the soldiers, the remaining soldiers, and Drogon. This is a great shot of Drogon sitting on a hill, nursing his wound and, and roaring and being a, a commergeny old asshole dragon. But what I did like was that she. Danny gave all the soldiers a choice, and we can debate this, and I hope there, there's some room for debate here. Usually Sarah is my counterpoint to anything Danny. She's not on the podcast tonight, but that's okay. We hope she gets better. Um, Danny gave the soldiers a choice. Bend the knee, follow me, and you won't die. Now, many people saw that as a not choice, like it's either die or follow me, but – that's a choice no matter how you look at it. Many people every day, you could call them religious zealots, they choose to die for their religion every day or they choose to die for their country by being soldiers. People choose to die every day. These people chose to follow Danny because she had a goddamn big dragon. Now, the other choice was Randall Tarley and his son Dickon, not Rickon, Dickon. He decided that he was going to follow his father into the flaming fire. Um... Dan, I'll ask you first. Mm-hmm. This whole Mad Queen scenario, I think I personally think it's bullshit. I don't think she's going down the Mad Queen path, and I think she gave these men perfect opportunity, ample opportunity. And had Randall Tarley said yes, I will go to the wall, she would have sent him there. Do you agree? Um, I don't know if she was under the wall. I don't know. It's a good question. I'm not sure. It, yeah, I mean, if, if he had bent the knee, he probably would have maybe even let uh, him leave from her armies. But we, 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 we can't know, can we, because she burned to a crisp. I thought, I thought this was the best thing of the episode. Um, I thought it was definitely the strongest. I, By the way, I love that debate that Sarah and Phone had on their small podcast. I thought it was great. Yeah, absolutely. Just talking back and forth about it, conscription and so forth. I mean, my, my point, and you... you I like how defensive you seem about your um, stance <laughs> about uh, Danny not being the Mad Queen, about her giving him a choice. I mean, look, she gave him a choice, but it's a terrible, terrible, terrible choice. Right. I mean, I think that's the reality. It's a choice. Yeah, it's war. Or die. It's, it's a war. sucky-ass choice. Um, but I know, yeah, it's war, and it does happen. I, and I, I agree with Thumb that conscription, you know, conscription is not like... It, it happens. I also like how they tied... Um, Danny's hatred of slavery into it when Tyrion suggests make some prisoners or make Dickon a prisoner. She's like, I'm not putting people in chains. And we know that she, you know, hates change. You know, she's right. a breaker of chains. So I kind of tied that in. 
The reason I, th- I thought it was so strong is because, like a lot of good Game of Thrones moments, you can look at it from different perspectives and you can see how different ones are valid. Like, I think you can look at this moment and you can see the Mad Queen. You can see somebody who is, you know, vengeful, who has a bit of a murderous streak in her, who will burn her enemies alive if they refuse to kowtow to her. I mean, Tyrion offered her a choice, too. Tyrion said, you know, maybe you should just put him in prison for a little bit. And and prisoners of war is definitely a thing that happens, too. She chose to go the burn-them-alive route. So, yeah, I think you can absolutely look at it and say the Mad Queen. I also think you can look at it and say she's just strong. She's making a decision. She's going with her gut, and that's what she does. And we know that she's done good things before. We know that she has... Uh, decent aims, and you can still think of her as a great leader. I, I think it works. That's why I like it so much, that she's a layered character, in this scene, you see some of her layers. I get, I get that. Appealing to one side of her, and she chooses another side. But but they're, they're all her. Like, that, that's all Daenerys. She's right. different perspectives on it, different layers. So that, that's why I like I, I thought it was a, a great scene, the best of the episode. She's definitely a Targaryen, though. That, that, there's no yeah. doubt that she's Targaryen, full blood. Like, that's how she acts. Yeah. And, and, and again, she's, she's, she's also a leader, and she's a conqueror. I mean, you don't... You gotta break some eggs to make an omelet. I guess I went for the cliche there. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't really hear anybody complaining when she burned that master in uh, Astapor for taking the dragon, right? Like, uh, was it Astapor where she got the Unsullied? Uh, yeah. She. Nobody complained whenever she had Drogon burn that guy alive, and then burn. He was a huge dick, and, and that's why this was a, a a a better not a better scene, but a, a more interesting scene. I thought because we did see that at least Dickon had some redeeming qualities. That's true. That's and true. It, it went with the whole spoils of war thing, and the master had no redeeming qualities. Where I, I the, the reason I love the spoils of war so much, and I, and I, but I like this scene a lot. It's because there's good and bad on both sides, and I think that's kind of George R. R. Martin's mission statement, which is war really is never a one like a one-sided thing. There's always a story on both sides, and I think we saw that in this scene and right. in the last episode in general. Richard, I know you've got some thoughts on this matter, and I want to bring up a point um, to, to what Dan said. He said – he talked about um, – Tyrion's alternative, like they could spend some nights in a cold cell that might change their mind. But Danny had before that said, bend the knee or die. She had already made the mission statement, either bend the knee or you get dead. Um, what's your thoughts on how she did this, Richard? I, I just, my idea that I wanted to add was just, you know, George R. R. Martin is big on history. And a lot of empires uh, in history, the Romans would kind of do this, the, the Huns, especially the Golden Horde where they would just send a messenger to you and say, bend the knee and join us and give us your soldiers, or we're going to burn every single city to the ground and destroy whatever you have. And so that choice is is a historic one. I think there's a lot of examples in history of conquerors acting that way, and I think she's just acting like these people. And, of course, as you guys all know, the Targaryens are kind of out of that Volantis mold, which is sort of Roman-ish, in a lot of ways, and I'm wondering if maybe he attached that to the way she acts or to the way that the Targaryen family uh, presents themselves. But that terrible choice is is, pres- is omnipresent in history, a lot of ways, with empires facing um, defeated or weak foes and saying, hey, 
you know, give us your army, pledge allegiance to us, or we, you know, burn every city, kill every person, and sow the earth with salt. I like that Richard classes up the podcast with history. That's, uh, <laughs> man, but also, we, recall that, that Tyrion's point is that she needs to be a different kind of conqueror. True. She but has yeah, to break the wheel. Yeah, that's, that's true. Break the wheel, or you're going to not be like everybody else. I agree with that completely, too. He did yeah, make Tyrion. a good point later on. I think it was in the Beyond the Wall episode, next episode we're going to talk about, where she said you, he, he told her, you wanted to break the wheel. Aegon created the wheel, but you want to break it. Yeah, I, I get that point. Those are all great points, and you're right. This this is kind of a gray area. You could either be you could you could land on either side with with Danny and how she treated treated the Tarleys. I really kind of wish Dickon would have just shut up and bent the knee because I like him. I like Tom Harper, Hopper as an actor. I liked him on Black Sails. Um, I think he would have been a fine addition to uh, whatever army he would have joined, or maybe he could have been. Traded away for prisoner exchange to Cersei. I don't care, but it'd have been fun to keep Dick on around. But whatever. Now uh, Sam's gonna be the Lord of Hornhill. I don't care about the, the Night's Watch. Anyway, uh, let's move on back to Dragonstone. Um, Sir Friendzone returned after John had his moment with Drogon and Daenerys and his his royal cape flight flapping in the wind. Um, Sir Jorah returns healed and. We actually get to see him and Danny um, uh, embrace, right, Dan? Like they embraced. Um, they hugged it out, guys. Yeah, they hugged it out, and it was a, it was a tender moment that harkened back to the tender moment they had in episode six, where she said, "You don't have my permission to die." And I kind of like that. You know, we speculated all during the off season. How is Danny going to uh, make? How is Danny going to, or how is Jorah going to heal himself? We had all these theories, and basically, it was Sam, the MVP of Westeros, who just cuts it away from his body. Who knew it was basically just scabs and pus, and and he was done. Um, so we get Jorah back, and then as soon as he gets back. John has a letter from Winterfell, and he's ready to go beyond the wall, and Jorah signs up immediately. Um, is this the case of Jorah trying to, um, I don't know, get in her good graces again? I don't think he needs to get in her good graces, but try to prove to her that he is the man that he, she should be with? Um, I'll ask you, Corey Smith. You haven't brought up a point yet. Um, I... I don't know. God, I mean, like on the one hand, yeah, it does kind of seem like okay, he's trying to impress Danny, but also on the flip side, it's a pretty suicidal mission that he's volunteering for. And I think that you know, when we first see Danny and and Jorah reunite, John is there too, right? And so I think Jorah kind of immediately senses that there's. Some sort of attraction. He's already he, he's returned, but he's still in the friend zone. Right. But, he can see like may, not that they're dating or whatever yet, but he could see that there's something going on there. Um, and so I don't know that he would. He's necessarily love struck enough to be like, oh well, if I go north of the wall, Danny will like me all of a sudden. I think I don't know. To me, I think he's kind of accepted his lot. That Danny's never gonna love him, um, but it doesn't change his dedication to or his belief that she'll be a better ruler than anybody else. 
And so I think he's dedicated to her cause and is going to do whatever he can to, you know, further that cause. So that that's kind of what I got from it. You know what I thought was fun? Uh, somebody made a meme of Jorah being on the boat instead of Tyrion watching John go into Danny's room. It was Jorah waiting in the shadows. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I don't know about you guys. I thought that was quite hilarious. But, uh, yeah, no, Sir Friendzone is going to always stay there, although he's getting a lot more love and respect from Danny than he ever did. She's happy to see him. He's a reminder of her early days, and I, my wife and I always do this. After every season of Game of Thrones, we watch it from episode one, season one, all the way through. And we just finished season one um, this past weekend, and we watched, you know, the first episode, Danny gets the books, the histories of Westeros from, from Jorah, and she instantly latches on to him because he's from Westeros and he speaks her language and uh, he can translate Dothraki for her. So, you know, he's a familiar face, and that's 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 pretty nice that he, they're back together, I guess. Um, let's go to let's go to let's go to King's Landing really quick because Jamie's pissed and he's marching through the the Red Keep covered in mud because apparently he didn't get a chance to change out of his soak, river soaked armor. They apparently they were really close to King's Landing during this battle. Uh, that is the Blackwater Rush they battled on, so they were really close to King's Landing. And and and, jo- and Jamie breaks in. Um, Kyburn's there giving Cersei some information. And, uh, later on, it's revealed that she's pregnant. Um, Dan, do you believe that she's really pregnant? Yes, I do. Why? Why why do Um, you believe? Why? Well, because she said she's pregnant. She touched her stomach, like, three times. Obviously uh, touched her stomach. we, 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 We saw them have sex. I just don't, I mean, I know there's a theory out there that she's not really pregnant, she's faking it. I just, I don't know, that seems like a case of people are trying to make something up when, I mean, you have, just accept what the show tells you in this case, is what I think. So yeah, okay. it's, it's, right. it's, it's real. Alright, cool, it's real. Uh, Richard, what do you think about the pregnancy? Is she using it um, to keep Jamie, well obviously it didn't work, it didn't keep Jamie around, but is she using it to her advantage for other things, like maybe getting Tyrion to soften up on not burning King's Landing? Well, well, she she can't be pregnant and also use it to her advantage. Like right. Both. That's true. That's true. Um, I, Richard, I would go, I would go against Dan Selke at my own peril, but I think she's faking it. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's just part of her manipulation. I think she's she's kind of gone way beyond the pale. I don't think she's even really responding to Jamie anymore. I think she's just at the point where she's using him uh, to her advantage, just like she is everybody else. I think she's the She's the Black Widow and the Spider Web. Finally, I think in their relationship, and he's just the fly. And I don't, and he doesn't see it that way. But that's the way I think. That's where she is now. So I think she's faking it, and uh, I think that Jamie's starting to realize that there's just not an ounce of love left for him in her anymore. She's all and, out of uh, love. I, I think she's just so traumatized. I think she's just. And he's still lost all, without her. Yeah, and he's, you know, he loves her. He's always loved her, and I think that she has loved him, but I think that's just ebbed away, uh, and I think she's just manipulating him the, because she knows if she, at that point if she told him that she had a child, that that would disarm all of his issues with her. I got you. I and, got you. Uh, 
And uh, that's 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 what I think about it. And one quick point, just on Daenerys and Jorah, I just thought there was a scene missing with them. That's part of. I know we're going to get into the bigger picture of maybe where we felt things weren't fleshed out, mm-hmm. but I kind of felt like we missed a really nice scene between the two of them, between showing up, talking at the strategy table, and leaving. Uh, I thought that there was a really good moment there that we didn't get. Okay. All right. What do you? Well, let's get. Let's, I agree with that. let's get to that. What are you talking about? Let's talk about it right now. What are you talking about? What I'm talking about? Just the the general feeling. I think that a lot of us have had. I only speak for myself, but I've I've of course read and what everybody else has talked about. That it it feels like with these fewer episodes, even though uh, Benioff and Weiss got a carte blanche, they they were able to do as many episodes as they wanted. HBO probably would have given them another fifty if they'd needed it. Amen. Uh, that somehow it feels like in trying to turn the locomotive on and get rolling that, that they may, it feels like a lot of these character reunions and some of these storylines um, got a little bit short shrifted. I agree. Uh, like maybe something like, Hey, how did you heal that, that awful grayscale? Oh, well there is this guy at Citadel. He cut it off. Oh yeah. What was his name? Samuel Tarley. Oh shit. I burned his dad. Right. Yeah. I mean, I even feel like, and I'm sure everybody else will talk about it, but um, I, I think, if given another episode or two to develop and be more complex, I think Little Littlefinger's game would have worked a lot better if there had been a little bit more time for it to be more complex and unfold. Um, and I know we're not to that storyline yet, so I don't want to jump the gun. No, but, uh, uh, we're definitely not to that story point yet. Um, let's see. We have we have the Citadel uh, scene. Sam, speaking of Sam and the Citadel, um this is one of the points where a lot of people kind of got angry at, at the show for rushing. Gilly inadvertently finds out that uh, Rhaegar Targaryen had his marriage annulled, and it was recorded by a Septon who recorded all of his shits. And, and who cares who he got annulled to because Sam's just pissed off and he's ready to go. And then he hands the book to a baby who's sitting by a fire. So either A, that book could have been thrown in the fire because babies don't give a fuck, or two, the baby could have just slobbered all over the pages because that's what babies do. Babies chew on books. Uh, they chew on paper. They chew on anything they can get their mouth on. So uh, I don't know. Uh, Corey Smith's going to find that out pretty soon when his, when his beautiful little daughter grows up a little bit. But um, the book survived apparently, and Sam takes credit for it later, which I thought was kind of a dick move. But um, – the Sam leaves the Citadel, and um, Corey, how did you feel about this whole Sam finally having enough on the same episode that his, his father and brother were killed that he didn't know about? Um, you know, I, Sam's storyline this this season was one I that I thought was pretty well done. Um, I didn't get the the rushed uh, nature of it that I did with some of the other storylines. I think that Sam figured out pretty quickly that he didn't fit in at the Citadel. Um, and I think, you know, he went there with these hot, he, he didn't go there to become a maester to, for its own sake. He went there to learn well, to help John, right. To learn things to help John that, you know, it, yes, he was studying to be a maester, but his focus was, I'm trying to help John. So when he figured out that wasn't going to happen, that the people there weren't interested in actually, you know, helping the the seven kingdoms, you know, he he booked it. And um, 
you know the 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 scene where they kind of casually drop in uh, the thing about Rhaegar and and Elia uh, getting their marriage annulled. I I don't know. I, I didn't think it was that bad of a scene. I mean, obviously Gilly doesn't know what she's reading. She she's only learned to read in the past couple seasons. She's not going to know. You know, she spent her whole life north of the wall. She's not going to know who Rhaegar Targaryen is. She's oh, don't get me wrong. Who... I didn't hate the scene. I just thought it was hilarious that it went by so fast, and it was such a – it was kind of a washed-over scene. Yeah, and, but I think that was sort of intentional. I think they wanted to kind of drop the little hint in there, and most people – I think most casual fans weren't going to necessarily pick up on that reference. Um, you know, I, I think that was kind of a – a casual type thing, and they, you know, the hardcore fans are obviously going to key in on it real quick, but everybody else isn't going to really necessarily catch it, and I think that that's why they did it that way. So I didn't have a big problem with it. Dan, you're you're big into symmetry and callbacks for Game of Thrones. Um, I thought what was tragically poetic was Sam, two two things Sam did before he left the Citadel. He walked through the Maester's Library, which is dark. And it wasn't spectacularly lit up with the sun and the mirrors, and that music wasn't playing. Or if it was playing, it was a sad version of the music. And then when he gets in in, in the in the cart to get, to get ready to leave, he he uses his dad's line of uh, learning about better men, reading the, the learning and reading the deeds of better men. Uh, and this is the same episode that his dad died. Uh, so I kind of thought that was a nice callback. Even though his dad, let's let's make no bones about it, Randall Tarley was a complete dick and an asshole, and I don't care that he died, but there's something to be said for a father's – or for a son's need to be loved and approved by his father. And him using his dad's line as he left was kind of a – was tragically poetic. What What did you think of that? I thought it was interesting. I mean, I've actually seen, seen, seen people criticize that bit for, like, Sam is internalizing his father's, uh, like, kind of terrible view of masculinity. And, um, but that's harmful, that he should, that Sam should follow his own call and want knowledge for its own sake. It'll be more healthy for him. By the mm-hmm. way, I'm, I took a bit Corey, that I am more or less enjoyed this. The same stuff this year. I thought, yeah, I could have used like maybe one more scene. Your dog liked it though, and that, that's important. Or, or he hated it. I can't oh, tell. I can't tell. I really like one. I'm gonna mute for a second. And I'm gonna yell at him real quick. <laughs> Dan, okay, <I'm> <laughs> Dan Selke yells at his dogs. All right. I mean, it's just a command to be quiet. <laughs> I like Sam's journey. It's we we're talking about like scenes that were kind of missing. Richard, you brought up the Jorah scene. Like I think it's the difference between I, I could have I could have used one more Sam scene where he was maybe enjoying the Citadel a little more, which would mm-hmm. make his decision to leave it more powerful. I could have used maybe one more Jorah scene where he ran to Daenerys. I didn't need them. I thought the stories did work without them. Like it wasn't like the Arya Sansa stuff where I needed another scene or two to make that work. Mm-hmm. Like these still worked even if they didn't maybe have all the notes. That's that they true. absolutely could have. Um, I enjoyed Sam leaving, and I thought, by the way, I thought the scene where Gilly found the regular thing, hilarious. I love that scene. I thought it was yeah. great. I thought it was a, a really good way to kind of sneak that information in there beneath the radar of Sam and the radar of the audience. As, as for Sam, yeah, quoting his father, I, I think it's 
Um, again, you can look at it from multiple angles. Is he kind of, he is the leader of House Charlie now, so he's literally becoming his father in a way, because he is now the leader of the house. That can be symbolized that. It, it, it also is a little weird that he's like, like that's the logic he uses, and that's, that's terrible logic. I mean, scholars do important things. Mm-hmm. Sam, anybody should know that. But I also agree that he came to the Citadel not to become a maester for his son, so it would help John, so I totally get why he left. Um, so I think it's a, a cocktail of things happening with Sam, and I did like to see how he grew a backbone this year and really showed it off in this episode where he booked it after Archmeister, Archmeister Slughorn. Or, um, <laughs> yeah, Slughorn. <laughs> real name. Is it Ebros? Ebros, yeah. Who was very, very good, I thought. Um, that was a, it was a nice, small supporting role for uh, Jim Broadbent to have that he brought some life to. That was a great um, semi-heel turn for Jim Broadbent. I kind of liked it. It was very uh, Slughornish of him. A little bit, yeah. But it, it, I mean, if it was a heel turn, it was so like a like a like a passive aggressive heel turn, right? Where he didn't attack anybody; he affronted Sam by not doing anything, which Sam's become the kind of person for whom that is not acceptable. Right. So I did get why he left, and I and I, I enjoyed his scenes pretty much, even though I, I I maybe wanted one more because I really like that moment where he leaves and he looks at the library and it's all dark because it mm-hmm. kind of reflected when he first came in there, it was all light, and he had, like, puppy dog eyes for it. <laughs> and I, I wanted, like, I wanted one more, a little more touch of, like, him just enjoying the Citadel and what it had to offer. Because he is a nerd. He does love books. And it, 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 it's all we got, pretty much, was him being frustrated. Maybe yeah. I wanted one more scene of him getting into it. He and never even had a chance to forge a chain, did he? Not even, a, so. not even a link in a chain, I don't think. I think he just left. Okay, that's fine with me. I get it. It's time. We have to rush things along. Um, the war is coming with the dead, and they have to be prepared. Um, but speaking of rush, let's get to the worst uh, scene, the worst storyline of Season 7, and that's Winterfell. Um, this episode had uh, Littlefinger playing the Catch Me If You Can game with Arya. Um, Richard, I, I want to ask you, how did you feel about Arya being duped by the master of, of, uh, of deceit with Littlefinger? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you introduced it well. I, I like most everybody else, had a lot of difficulty with that storyline, um, because we can sort of talk about that little edited scene where, um... Isaac Hempstead Wright sort of tells us that Sansa and Arya didn't know all along. Right. Uh, that Littlefinger was playing them against each other. Which put to bed all the rest of – were the sisters putting on a show for Littlefinger. That put, put that theory to rest. Right, which I never bought that theory because they were carrying on their charade when they were alone. Right. And so, yeah, when they knew Littlefinger wasn't around, they were still going at each other. Um, and so I think from the very beginning, it just had that – artificiality to it like it was the forced drama and it just played Arya and Sansa just they're too dumb they're not they're way smarter than this they can't be they can't they have to be able to see the forest for the trees here because it's really obvious look who you're talking to and so I think just all in general it just none of that really flew for me uh Corey what bothered me about this whole um cat and mouse game they played 
Arya knows who Little, and I made this point during the season. Arya knew who Littlefinger was. She was there at Heron Hall when Littlefinger plotted against Rob with Tyrant Tywin Lannister. She knows what kind of person he was, and Sansa all season kept saying. Littlefinger will never do anything unless he needs something from you. Don't trust Littlefinger. Uh, Bran, the, the three-eyed uh, computer, basically all he had to do was tap into one memory, and he knew exactly what Littlefinger did. And yet we were stuck with this horrid forced line for three more episodes, and I just really was frustrated with the whole thing. And I just don't – I just don't understand why a man as dangerous as Littlefinger, who Arya knows who she was, who he was, why was he allowed to live? I much would have rather remember the remember the theory Corey Thone threw up on the podcast that Arya had killed Littlefinger and was wearing his face. I much would have rather gone with that entire storyline. Arya kills Littlefinger, wears his face, tests uh, the loyalty of Sansa, and then when she proves to be a Stark. Pulls off his face and goes, ha ha, you passed the test, and then runs away, skipping down the crib, singing a song. I don't know. But how, I know you really didn't care for this storyline, but tell me how you really felt. Yeah, I mean, that that would have been preferable. You know what else would have been preferable? If Bran hadn't arrived in Winterfell until, like, say, episode six or seven. Yeah. You know? Yes, yes. Right? Like, if, if he's sitting there the whole time, it, 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 it sort of negates the suspense of it all. You know what I mean? And we talked about this when we've talked about his character before is that you have to tread carefully with someone who knows everything. Literally Um, you have to work around them because that becomes a huge plot hole. And so, yeah, it's like, why didn't Sansa ever go to brand, especially, I mean, like if you're having problems with your siblings, you usually go and talk to the other siblings, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so why didn't Sansa or Arya, vice versa? I mean, Arya could have just easily gone and talked to Bran as well, and it could have gotten sorted out so easily. And so, yeah, it was hard to watch this stuff unfold when it was so, you know, almost insulting to our intelligence. You know what I mean? Like, and nobody actually believed Arya would ever kill Sansa, right? Right. And, and then, you know, it, it also felt, you know, they made mention throughout the series about how, how much of a master manipulator Littlefinger was. Um, you know, Varys said it a couple times. I, um, a few other characters have always said it. And so it's, it, ultimately it felt like they, they shorted the character. You know, we'll see his downfall later in, this, in the talk about it later in the podcast, but they ultimately kind of shorted it by, you know, a a pretty stupid plan. You know what I mean? Right. And so, yeah, the whole thing just didn't really work for me. I don't think it worked for anybody. I I mean, I haven't really heard anybody who's like, oh, my gosh, that was so awesome how it all (laughs) went down, you know? And so, again, I just think that they could have tweaked a little thing here or there. The, The face thing would have been a super mind twist, you know, Arya wearing Littlefinger's face, but they could have just done a simple twist and had Bran not show up till six or seven. You yeah, know what because I mean? as soon as Arya shows up, he gives that – before that, he gives the line, chaos as a ladder, so you instantly know that he, he knows things about Littlefinger. He hands the dagger to uh, Arya and makes sure that she knows it came from Littlefinger, and it's like – 
I know where this is going. Even if I didn't right. read the spoilers on Reddit, I know where this is going. I'm yes. not dumb. Let's just get there already. Right. Yeah, exactly. They could have – Brand could have showed up and be like, hey, Littlefinger's playing against you, and they could have executed him the same episode. And that would have still been more satisfying than what we got because the whole time we know – like we have no – no one – you know, there's no actual tension. Nobody actually believes that Santa or Arya is going to kill the other. So, you know, it, it just wasn't handled very well. I wish they would have done it better because uh, I, I always thought Littlefinger was, you know, his shifting accent aside. I thought he was a, I thought he was a great character. I did too. You know, he, he rose from basically nothing to be, you know, to be a power player in the Seven Kingdoms. And he did it basically with, you know, his cunning and his, his manipulation. So I liked that character, and then ultimately it didn't feel like they did it a lot of justice um, with the way things ended up. I also want to say that I enjoyed Aiden Gillen in the, in the role. I, I know a lot of people, uh, Sarah in particular, because she's from Ireland, says I, people from Ireland hate him. I thought he did a great job. I, I, I'm, I've been a fan of his and other, other shows before, The Wire, Peaky Blinders. He's a good actor. I, I enjoyed him as Littlefinger, I, and I agree with you. I think uh, his whole storyline was shorted. Richard, you had a point you wanted to bring up on this. Yeah, just real quick, and I, I'm totally uh, on the same page with you guys on all of that. Um, just in terms of the Arya thing, it, it just really bothered me. The whole thing was based sort of on the conceit, I guess, that Arya, who's now older, she's very worldly, she's been through a lot of things, wouldn't understand that in that letter, sort that Sansa, who was, I don't know how old at that point, 12 or whatever she was, was forced to sign that message, hmm. that she wouldn't believe that her sister could have been coerced that rang so false that just everything else on top of it just just couldn't you just couldn't believe it. Can can we bring up a point since you decided to talk about the letter? I know yeah. people are going to just groan when I say this. Probably Dan's rolling his eyes right now, but that letter, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't even written by Sansa, was it? It was written by Cersei and sent to Winterfell and Arya specifically says, this is your pretty little handwriting because Septimordain always wrapped my knuckles. Eh, plot hole or eh, who cares, Dan? I, I thought, well, hold on, I thought that they, I thought that she made her write it. That depends, yeah. Yeah, she did write it. Oh, yeah, because yeah. when Rob and Catelyn get it, Catelyn's like, yeah. it's her writing, but it's the Queen's words. Okay. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, maybe, exactly. maybe I'm wrong. I so, plot hole or don't care, or David is just incorrect. David's an asshole. David's an asshole, and he just wants to nitpick too much. Yes, I agree with that. Um. Okay, let's let's leave Winterfell. Let's go with the No, court. are you kidding? I haven't talked about it. Oh, you talk. Please talk some more about what you're on this. You kidding? Go, go ahead. Um, all right. I mean, first I want to say that I would have oh, – you, you guys really think that Arya wearing Littlefinger's face would have been fun? It would have been I a mindfuck. Incredibly <laughs> scooby-doo stupid. It would have been a mindfuck and a half if at the very end in episode seven he's like – Chaos is a ladder, and then she she pulls off the face, and it's like, ah, I'm kidding, I love you, and that's it. I mean, that come on. Great for that's a Twilight like sketch about Game of Thrones. That's <laughs> awful for the show. It's, Twilight, it's a Twilight Zone episode of Game of yeah, Thrones. Yeah, it's that's not Game of Thrones to me. I guess. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I loved it. I, I'm sure it was fun. I mean, get the execution scene was fun. 
I, like uh, a lot of what you said has, uh, I, I agree with some of it, not all of it. I mean, you know, why didn't they ask Bran? Yeah, they should have asked Bran. But he was also being very weird, and I, I get that he wouldn't come to them because it was made pretty clear that he just doesn't care. Like he he would not talk about this unless you actually asked him point blank because he doesn't think any of this is important anymore. He's only focused on beyond the wall. He's probably spent a lot of time with the Ravens beyond the wall, checking things out, having out of body experience. I get that. The main problem I have with it was what Richard said. I think the crux of it was the Arya of it all. That I just didn't buy that she would get that upset. I mean, uh, David, you, you said that Arya knows Littlefinger. I mean, I think that they, that they, that they know that too. That's why she followed him. That's right. why she was snooping. So, like, she was suspicious of him. And I, I can also buy that Littlefinger was, is wily enough to use that to his advantage. Like, I was more or less with it in, like, up until she found the letter. I was like, eh, this could be paced better, but I'm like, okay, let's see where it goes. But it's, like, like Richard said, I just didn't buy the animosity from Arya to Sansa. Even though it was there. I mean, it, it, it's not like they were, they were building on nothing. They, yeah, they've, all, they've always been not very close. I mean, and also, remember the whole King's Road thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Arya's playing with Micah, Joffrey comes along, and Arya bites him. And then Sansa straight up lies. She will not stand up for her sister. Right. I mean, that was a rift. And childhood wounds do go deep. And Arya has been shown to, you know, take very seriously anyone she thinks has betrayed her family. I mean, I, I still hate my brother for stomping on my G.I. Joe jet plane along t- when I was 10. So, yeah, I get it. I still kind of hate my brother for crappy to me when I was 10. Like, and <laughs> I loved that... Isis brought that up. She said that, like, she has trouble seeing one of her brothers, remember in some podcast, even though they're both a lot older and he's grown, she still kind of thinks of him as, like, an immature person in a way. And I'm misquoting you, Isis, I'm very sorry. And I mean, like, I also do that to, to, to my brother. Like, we, we didn't have the best relationship growing up. And even now, even though we're both grown up and he's a lot, you know, he's a lot better, we're both a lot better. I still, like, I have trouble giving him the benefit of the doubt, even if he deserves it. So I, I do, I, I think the ideas were there. I think the emotional connection was there. I just think she still needed more reason. She still needed something else. There, there was a beat missing, maybe right. a couple of beats. I agree. Missing that, they, that they should have done more. But, like, over, I get it. I, I do get the arc of it. And I get what they were going for. And I think everybody with some additions would have been acting in character. And it, and it was close to being a successful storyline, but it just it just needed more. That's my opinion on that. Too rushed, too fast, which was the uh, overall theme of the season. Let's get to the really cool stuff before we close out this episode of Eastwatch and move on to Beyond the Wall. Um, Davos smuggles Tyrion into King's Landing. And finds Gendry, who has a go-bag with a Baratheon Warhammer just under the counter waiting for the day that Davos would find him. And I don't even care if that makes sense or not. I just care that it was fun. There was a fourth wall break about the rowing of the boat that was amazing. 
Davos also had a low-key great season. Um, I called him Davos of House Obvious in an article I wrote for Wig today, and I was thought it was great. Uh, I think he was so obvious this season, and and he kept saying things like, uh, "I'm not much of a fighter." Oh yeah, we get it. And Thoros calls him out on it at, at when they're at at uh, Eastwatch. So there was a lot of great things with Davos, but he finds Gendry, tells Gendry, "Don't say a goddamn word about who you are." You're just some some blacksmith anxious to get to Winterfell, and they kill two gold cloaks. Um, they, they, and I want to ask you guys a question, and, and I'll ask you this, Corey, Mister Obvious, Mister Mister Notice of Obvious Things. Um, I'm going to ask you this question: Did it look like Tyrion recognized um, uh, what's his name, Gendry? Whenever Davos says this is Gendry, he's okay. Did it look like he recognized him? Because he's at that he he looked at him and he said he'll do, and and Tyrion knows what I think looks like. Yeah, I don't know. I I I didn't get that from the scene. I mean, it certainly, yeah, Tyrion would recognize Robert's bastard, and I mean, at least in the books, they make a point of saying how much Gendry looked uh, like kind of a younger Robert. Uh, a little bit more like uh, Robert's younger brother, Renly. Um, but so the the physical um, resemblance is supposed to be there. Um, but I don't know if I got that from that scene uh, necessarily. But uh, I don't know. Has anybody else ever brought that up? I hadn't heard that before. Nobody's brought it up. I thought about I've I've watched that episode several times. And every time I see it, Tyrion takes a moment, and you guys can watch it. Later on tomorrow, tonight after the podcast, Tyrion takes a moment when Davos introduces him. He looks at directly at Gendry and says, he'll do. And there's just a moment, and it, I could be reading into things like I do quite often. Uh, it looks like Tyrion recognizes who uh, Gendry is, but that never came to fruition this season, so maybe it was nothing. Um But we did get a cool moment. Like, Gendry's got a badass Warhammer with... with House Baratheon uh, stags on either side, so it's basically a carrying card, basically a calling card. Hi, I'm Robert Baratheon's bastard. Nice to meet you. Um, what did you think of the Warhammer, Richard, as an Unsullied? Richard, are you there? Hey, I'm sorry. I got to get my mic back on. That's Hold okay. <laughs> I clicked on it. Nothing happened. Um, uh, it was very cool. I mean, I know enough about the background, you know, to know. Uh, the importance of the Warhammer and how Robert used it on Rhaegar uh, at the Trident. Um, so that was, for me, I knew enough about it to understand what that was uh, hailing back to. And I think he used it quite well. And it was it was just, I liked that scene. I liked that scene. I liked, um, I really liked the whole thing where Sir Davos had it in hand. Um, you know, he was sort of playing the boys with the, what was it, the oysters and Fermented well, crab. Fer- fermented yeah, crab. Yeah, fermented crab and the oysters. And as a fellow graybeard, I always have a soft spot for for uh, Sir Davos. But I thought that was a really nice scene. And uh, actually, just in, in reference to what you were talking to before, I think that that Tyrion just saw Robert in the boy. I don't think he recognized him outside of that. Okay. Um, but I think he that was him seeing Robert's uh, DNA there. Um, so, so anyway, you, say, yeah, you think he kind of recognized him then, maybe possibly. He, well, 
I've had, uh, when I was a kid working out on my father's farm and my dad's old friends would come by to visit, they'd stare at me like I was a ghost because I look like my dad. Right. Okay. Yeah, and exactly. They're, yeah, they're looking at somebody that they knew when they were 20 years, 30 years younger who looks like that person. And I think that sort of, Tyrion was like, oh yeah, that's Robert Baratheon's son. That's the bloodline he'll do because, you know, he's, he's uh, you know, he's Robert's. We need him for the Stormlands later. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, Davos continues to tell him to keep his mouth shut, and as soon as he introduces himself to the King of the North, Jon Snow, Gendry's like, fuck this, I'm a Baratheon, you're a Stark, our dads are BFFs, let's talk. Dan, how'd you feel about that moment? Um, it was, it was cute, it was fine. I mean, the, the, the whole Gendry thing was, it, it did seem like he'd done a lot of growing off screen, right? Like... He, he didn't strike me as the kind of guy who would embrace being a king's son before. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of, he was a commoner, that's what he was fine with. He was an aw-shucks kind of guy. Didn't put on airs. But it looks like in between, after he learned from it, after he learned that information season three, and now he kind of let it get in himself and, and, and become proud of it in a way. And... It, it, some of those things, like, I guess we could have seen that happen, but, I mean, he was off screen for three seasons, and I thought they did a good job of having him come right back in, and we see he's a little different, and he's immediately raring to go, and now he's uh, ready to do his family proud. As for telling Jon Snow, I mean, yeah, it was a nice moment. They smiled at each other. They commiserated over their dads being buddies, even though, actually, I think, so John's dad, no, Henry's dad killed John's dad. Yeah, in, in, in actuality, later. yeah, in actuality, it was a really bad reunion on Gendry's part. But um, okay. before we move to the wall, because the Suicide Squad did leave the wall at this, in this episode, um, Corey Smith, you wanted to talk about the the, the good reunion. We you know we had a lot of reunions in this season, a lot of reunions, but the the Tyrion and Jamie reunion had a moment where it could have gone really well. And then it ended up just being meh to me. How did you feel about the Tyrion Jamie reunion? Um, you know that. Yeah, the the moment you're referring to is obviously when uh, when Tyrion tries to make a joke, and Jamie almost you can you can see he almost laughs. Like he, you could he wants me, to laugh. You couldn't cut me through with that with the practice sword and something like that. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. Because he's not he's not carrying widow's whale. He's carrying a little practice sword. But yeah, I mean, the reunion was kind of indicative of kind of the problems we had with the season in general. It's just too short. Um, you know, they the last they'd seen each other, Jamie was freeing Tyrion from execution, and then Tyrion, of course, snuck off and killed their father. Um, and so there's a lot to to go through there and it just was it just was too short i think it was i think what under i think it was under like two minutes of actual screen time um you know that they're having that conversation and it just i don't know of course they're not going to sit down and you know share a bottle of wine in the dungeons of king's landing but you just it just felt rushed um and on the same i guess on the same token there were some good moments um in the episode um not in the episode in the conversation um but it just it just was a little too quick i think for what many of us probably thought was you know a big reunion couldn't they just have mentioned that one cousin who smashed beetles what was that guy's right Uh, yeah orson orson Orson. 
Cool, yeah. cool, cool. Orson. And because <laughs> I mean, at least from Tyrion's side point or viewpoint, sorry, he Jamie was always the only person who stuck up for him. You know, his dad never took up for him. His sister obviously never did, and so Jamie was the would be the one person that he would be happy to see. Um, obviously, Jamie wouldn't because he, you know, he murdered Tywin, but. It just it it lacked a little bit for what what I was looking forward to, you know, as far as their reunion. Dan, did you notice that uh, in both times that Tyrion was talking to his siblings, with Jamie and with Cersei, each time he got to the part about the fact that his dad was going to kill him, um, both of them shut him down really quick, like oh boohoo, whatever, uh, you know, because that's the time when Tyrion. He goes from being the uh, the wise hand of the queen, the the, the smart imp, the, the dwarf that 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 nobody likes, but he doesn't he doesn't care, to being I'm just, I'm the younger brother and I'm tired of being bullied by my siblings and my daddy was a dick and and every time he mentioned it, they both shut him down really quick. Did you find that interesting? I mean, you don't really think about it that much. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean. They don't want to talk about the time their dad died and their lives went to hell. It makes sense to me. Um, well, Cersei's point of view was, oh, boo-hoo, father hated you. And yeah, Jamie, Jamie was like, Jamie, Jamie said uh, something about, uh, we're not going to talk about father or something like that. You know, I, it was Yeah, just, because uh, there, there's horrible bad blood between them. So right, I don't want to talk right, about right. that. And I mean, I enjoyed the, I mean, yeah, because Tyrion's a smart guy and he's an advisor and all that. But this is his family, his incredible dysfunctional family. He, he, he knows them. That's why he's the one who's talking to them. But they have baggage no one else does. It's bag. I love that baggage. I think it's really juicy baggage that was developed over a lot of seasons, and I, and I like seeing it play out. I, especially the Tyrion-Cersei talk, was, I thought was really strong in the last right. episode. And I mean, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Corey, I agree with you. I... I I, I, I really enjoyed the, the scene, what there was of it, Jamie and Tyrion. I thought everything was strong. The two guys were acting their asses off, I thought. They were both mm-hmm. really, really good in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that like, Tyrion was, like, reaching out, and he wanted to connect with Jamie, and Jamie wasn't having it. Yeah. I would have liked a bit longer of a scene, though. But what we had was at least solid and entertaining. And they made up for it a little later with the uh, Tyrion-Cersei talk. Okay, which was so... Which more robust was much more robust, but let's let's move on. Uh, the end of the episode sees Jon Snow with his group uh, at Eastwatch. They see Tormund. There's a great there's a great line about uh, the queen who flies dragons or the queen who fucks her brother. And then uh, did, he even mentions the big lady. Did you bring the big lady or something like that? And th- there's some great lines. And then they meet each other in the cells and they each talk to each other. Blah blah blah. They leave. They leave Eastwatch. End of episode. Suicide Squad. Ha 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 ha. Now <laughs> the next episode, episode six, Beyond the Wall. Um, guys, I don't want to spend too much time on this episode because there really wasn't that much to get into, <clears throat> with the exception of the fact that of, of I get I would say about three major events took place here. One, we learned that. Uh, besides all the side talking, we don't need to get into that. We had that in one of our podcasts. If you want to hear that, go back to our podcast about Beyond the Wall, and you'll hear us talk about the side the side conversations. But what I want to talk about is what we learned in this episode. <clears throat> Number one, 
uh, kill a White Walker, and all the Whites that that White Walker has turned will die, except for Larry the asshole who decided to stay alive. Number two, <clears throat> the, the Night King has an incredible arm, and he's deadly with his aim. Well, at least once he was deadly with his aim, and we now have uh, an undead Viserion. Number three, Uncle Benjen is cold hands, confirmed by showrunners David Benioff and Dan Weiss. May not be that way in the books, but on the show, uh, Uncle Benjen had was confirmed as cold hands. Uh, a lot went down in these ep- in this episode, so let's get through it. Uh, I've already talked about the white. Um, do, 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 do any of you have any feelings about that? Uh, like learning that kill a white, it kills its white walkers, or kill a white walker, it kills its whites. Yeah, talk sure. about a talk about a convenient plot point. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that was horseshit because we'd seen we'd seen other white walkers be killed and no whites ever dropped to the ground. Well, we'd seen one other white walker get killed, and it was outside of a hut, and there were no other whites on no. screen. Disagree. Disagree. No. We saw the one in the cave of the three-eyed raven, and they were getting swamped by whites in there, too. Merit, well, there's a whole army of them. There's no reason that can't be true. I, I, I understand. It just, oh, it, and there were no – I mean, there were, like, a couple of whites in there, but it was mostly just the white walkers and Mira and the guys. There were a fuck ton of whites. They were on the ceiling. They were still getting in there. They were all on the sides. They were coming in the, the tunnel. Okay. There wasn't a swamp of I'm just saying that was the like. I call bullshit on your bullshit. That's what I'm saying. Okay, you couldn't even you couldn't even have had two of them that stood up. Like you literally had one. You could well, have that was two, silly, sure. You know what I mean? Like you could have had just two. Like okay, that's the only one that that guy didn't turn. And then what? Why was he in that guy's little platoon? Why? You know what I mean? It was just. It was. It was terrible. It was just a convenient plot point. They needed one. I mean, we talked about this before we watched the episode. We're like, how the hell are they going to get one white all by itself? And, the, you know, in the Game of Thrones, writers basically said, hold my beer. And it's like, <laughs> it, 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 you know what I mean? We're going to have ten of them walking out by themselves, and nine of them are going to die. When you kill the the White Walker with him, and it was when just, Jon it, Snow kills the exact same White Walker he killed at Hardhome. right? So it was <laughs> exactly. So I, I mean, I get why they did it. It just it it was just a little bit too convenient for me. I mean, I, I think the the convenient thing was, yeah. I mean, they could have had like half of them go down. It's I think it's a hugely important plot point, though. That means. They got to kill the Night King, who we know raised the great majority of this army, and that's that's their objective now. It's, it's pretty. Huge, it's hugely. I think it's hugely important. Important, but I agree with Corey. It was very convenient for this episode. Why couldn't it yeah. have been uh, introduced during the the raid on the Three Eyed Raven's Cave or at Hard Home? Why couldn't we have been told about this when we had battles with actual whites and white walkers before this could have been something that could have been introduced a long time ago not during the episode when they needed to capture one white which by the way that white didn't die and and that still was never explained so but whatever you know i I agree it's huge it's it's very it's a game changer and barrack even mentions it later to john as they're standing in the middle of the lake he's like we don't have to do anything else. We just got to kill that guy. 
And, uh, or maybe, maybe it wasn't Barrick. Maybe it was Jor. No, it was Barrick. It was Barrick. Okay. But Jor made the comment about asking why it happened. And yeah, then Barrick was like, yeah, let's just take out. Jor did the Davos. Jor pulled the Davos. And, and then Barrick, Barrick said, that guy's the guy we need to kill. But, um, we could talk about this all night. Let's not do that. Let's keep moving. Um, so, Larry the asshole screeches really loud. And calls all the White Walkers. And so they decide to run to the Frozen Lake. And for however many days. Now, we, here's, where we get, here's where we get a lot of the problems that many, 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 many Game of Thrones fans, including Corey Smith and myself and Corey Thone, all had problems with. Um, we get the problem of, first of all, Gendry making his uh, Olympic however many mile yard dash to uh, Eastwatch. Uh, and he got, and he loses his hammer. He hands it over to the hound. The hound uses it for a little bit, but I'm assuming because I don't remember that hammer getting picked up. That badass hammer getting left in the snow somewhere, and that sucks. But um, so then we get a raven sent to Eastwatch, which goddamn fastest ever raven email. And then the dragons fly in to save the day. We don't know how many days that took place. And this is what Corey Thelman brought up, and I love that he brought this point up. And Richard, I'm going to ask you this. Um, would it have been nice of the director to s- just say, hey, it's been day three and Thoros is dead. We, we're going to have to do something soon. Like, you know, give us a day count, you know? Like, let us know how many days have been out there, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know it was – that was all pretty rough. And I had a – a friend of mine mentioned I was talking to him about it over dinner and uh, he's unsullied as well, but he felt like sometimes in the episodes to him, it felt like the, the story, the story uh, runner, the showrunners had a list of bullet points and they were just trying to hit them <laughs> and, you know, just, okay, this has to happen. So boom, it happens and this has to happen and boom and okay, let's move on. Now we can do this. And it just felt like, you know, it, it, you hate to be like an armchair quarterback writer person, you know, coming back after something but it just seems like it wouldn't have been that hard to make some of that work better. Like, okay, they're on that little piece of ground for for four days. And, you know, maybe Daenerys brought her dragons up to the wall because they're gonna they're gonna they know they're gonna need her if they get in trouble. And maybe like in the Lord I think they did it in Lord of the Rings, um, in order to signal the wall if they get in trouble, they'd take a few of the red shirt guys, you know, like the nondescript <laughs> crows. And each of them goes on with line of sight on top of a mountain, and they set a fire that would send a signal all the way back to the wall. All the and red shirts died before they got to the lake, though. <laughs> like, at least that would have been their intention. But it just seems like it would have been easy to have at least in- injected a lot more logic into that sequence, even with some of the geographic problems. Uh, and, okay, okay, so there's my little uh, you know, alternate uh, way of writing the scene, but it really was, I think they really kind of pushed and broke the envelope on unbelievability in terms of space time continuum in that particular situation. Dan Selke suspension of disbelief yeah. in this episode. Um, I mean, uh, people can, of course he can. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not sure that we talked about the main problem with it yet is that the entire thing, the whole idea of going on a white hunt, seemed shaky from the start, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it was really ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Like, the idea that Tyrion, a smart guy, would come up with that, even though he's not really... I, I don't, I'm not sure why he'd be convinced of the need 
or, 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 or even the existence of a white army yet. They really played down Tyrion. They played down Tyrion's uh, intellectual abilities in this season. By the way, I'm just gonna. Start I don't know about that. that. I think I had reasons for this bit, though. I didn't buy this coming from him at all. It just he doesn't know nearly enough to think it's a good idea. Right. I mean, I, I can kind of buy that John would be dumb enough to go on a suicide mission to do it because he's always up for that. Yep. Um, it just. It just and, and then to convince Cersei, who they don't really have a reason to believe she'll care, on the on the off chance they can find this really violent needle in a violent haystack that have no idea where it is, but somewhere at Eastwatch, like this just just the the, the whole thing was shaky from the start. Mm-hmm. So th- they had an uphill battle, and look, it's it, it's not that Game of Thrones can't have little plot holes, like the Jamie surviving the Marianas Trench thing, like that's something that happened. You know, I was like, "Yeah, you could have put something in there to satisfy me, but uh, fine, it's going to be fine." Yeah, whatever. It's just this episode, it had it you just couldn't ignore all of them when they all come together like this. It just, it had all of them in one place. If if the time weirdness wasn't getting you, then the the convenience of the all the whites but one falling wood if that didn't get you, you're asking where they got that chain. If that didn't get you, you're asking why the Night King didn't Attack. You know, attack Drogon rather than the one who's flying around. I did get there wondering, like, where are the horses? Just, there were so many that eventually you just had to be like, okay, let's come back next week and see if we, we can do better. We put together on, the, on our episode so many. It was like you showed the Army of the Dead in the very first episode, second scene of the very first episode, and you had giants, three giants. Why not have those giants carrying chain across their shoulders? Why wouldn't that be something instead of carrying a longbow they never used? Why not carry chain? That would be really fucking cool. Because then you yeah, could actually go, you could go back and say, "Oh, that's where the chain came from." I mean, that the, the chains I didn't really care about at all. I mean, they have chains. Like, why can't they have big chains? But um, why can't they? The, the other stuff. <laughs> why can't they? Because there's not a Home Depot out past the wall that we know of. And but when... there's huge, huge, and they've had thousands of years to prepare, and they have miles and miles and miles of space. What if there are some chains in that space they got at some point? In the Corey of Smith, let's go. Bo- I Corey no, I I totally agree with Dan. Corey Smith, uh, uh-uh, uh, let's go book nerd on him. And it's it's very, <laughs> very, 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 very. very Put down in the books that the wildlings and everybody beyond the wall, don't, they don't even know how to work with metal. It's just the thins that know how to make brass. The thins make What about giants? What about white walkers? They what about use, their technology? They use stones and fucking yeah. ice. Yeah, they Y'all don't about... know them. <laughs> well, we do, actually. <laughs> uh, well, actually... They, no, they, in the books, they do make that point over and over and over again that all the wildlings are basically armed with weapons they've stolen from the Night's Watch. Um, even and even on even in on the show um, when they go and visit uh, Craster, remember they give him that axe. Yeah, um, and that axe is basically like you know solid gold to him because they don't <laughs> have. They don't have metal workers up there. So, you know, but, I mean, that being said, yeah, the chains thing, uh, I think I I agree with Dan. It was just way too many plot points that didn't make any sense whatsoever in one episode. Um, and they just, it, 
you know, it, the episode kind of collapsed under the weight of all these plot points that didn't make any sense. And I think, Richard, you kind of touched on it, and we've, we've mentioned it here or there, but a lot of them could have been fixed with quick, easy, you know, little dialogue, um, you know, here or there. You could have you could have added a line here, added a line there, and it could have explained uh, a lot of things. Like what you were saying with the, the time lapse. You know, hey, it's been... All you got to do is add a line. Hey, it's been three days. We're running out of food. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. It, it, a lot of the things could have been easily fixed, um, but they didn't seem to be at all interested in, you know, kind of making it all flow together. It did seem like they had, uh, you know, a, a set of points. And, I mean, we'll talk to more about this towards, the, I guess, the end of the podcast when we wrap it up, but it it's really baffling to me. That they you know, went this route with a lot of things. You had white walkers. You had whites that couldn't swim, going down and wrapping the chain around the Sarian. I guess that they were they were whites that did it. And then you had whites popping back out of the water to drag um, Tormund in. There was all kinds of fun little neat little things that just did not make sense. But whatever. You know just what? The just thing, inconsistent. It was just the, inconsistent. The thing about this I mean, episode is it was fun because it was a yeah. battle. And it was sad because the Sarian died. And it was exciting because the dragons came in and wrecked a lot of dicks. They burned they burned a lot of whites. And it was cool how they left the scarring in the ice and they showed that. It was really, really neat. But it was also you're right, Corey Smith, I agree. It was weighed down by so many plot holes. Um and that's, that's, that's really all I've got to say about this episode, unless you guys have any other thing you want to say about Beyond the Wall, we can get to the final episode. Anybody have any final thoughts on Beyond the Wall? Yeah. I, had, I had one um, last. Go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I liked the scene with uh, Daenerys and Tyrion talking about secession. I enjoyed that bit. Ah, great that's point. one of the stronger ones. That was a good point. And you know what? Had, had, had Sarah been on this podcast, she would have said that was another point of Mad Queenage. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, again, I love Sarah. I, I, I do love her to death, and I'm just, I'm just joking. She, she and I like to uh, talk about the count, point counterpoint to the Mad Queen, but I just think that it hurt Danny's feelings a little bit that uh, Tyrion brought up the fact she couldn't have kids, and like, uh, who's going to replace you when you die? And I just like the fact that Danny said, "Let me get the crown first, and then we'll talk about succession." Yeah. Um. I thought it was a strong. I, th- I thought it was one of the stronger scenes from the episode, just because I thought it was consistent. I mean, also, I, I think the point of session is very, very important. Like it's something they should bring up. Like I wonder that myself. What will she do when she takes the crown? And again, I, I got why she was getting prickly about it because of the Baron issue. But I also got why Tyrion was pressing it, so I liked that. I also liked the. I actually did like the scene when John woke up um, after he survived his close encounter with really cold water. The tender moment. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I, I thought Daenerys was convincingly heartbroken over the death of her kids. I thought they had a connection, and I know that we've talked about some about um, how there was there wasn't enough build up in the. Danny John romance, but there there were some good moments. I thought there that were. was one of them. There really were where where they were kind of locking eyes and they were both in pain, and John kind of tries to assuage it by bending the knee to her, metaphorically speaking. 
I thought that worked. So some of the smaller moments I liked in this episode. What about you, Richard? Oh, yeah, no, I, I really like the John Daenerys storyline. <clears throat> I think they, you know, they didn't have a heck of a lot of time to get him together and, and get him in the sack, but I thought they had some really cute scenes leading up to that. There was one scene when they were both out on the Dragonstone stairs staring out at the dragons cavorting around, and uh, they had a little conversation, uh, and then John walked away, and she gave him that look back over her shoulder, and I was like, okay, that's sealed, that's done. You know, they're going to be together. <laughs> they're going to pay yeah, so I know I've been I've been really happy with with that storyline, um, and uh, I think those two actors really really knocked it out of the park in their scenes, right. especially uh, in in that one scene where John was in the bed um, before not in the scene where they were both in the bed, but where she was sick. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, and, I get it. Uh, well, they were all good. It was good. Uh, but one other little side note I wanted to make was I'm kind of I'm kind of waiting for something really cool to come out of the Night King's army because. These guys have been around for like millennia, right? And mm-hmm. he can kind of bring back to life sort of anything that falls out of a glacier or whatever he finds. So I'm kind of hoping there might be a couple of really cool uh, little creatures in his army somewhere. They uh, have so- budget for a polar bear and a dragon. You can't ask for more. <laughs> okay. the, so books, we- the books talk about ice spiders and all kinds of shit. So you never yeah. know what might happen. All right. Um, let's move on to the final episode, The Dragon and the Wolf, aptly titled. Um, this episode, to me, was one of the better episodes of the season. I, I enjoyed the finale. Um, I enjoyed, I think my favorite part of the entire episode was, and, and a lot of people like this, was the meeting at, at, at the uh, Dragon Pit. And I'm, I'm not going to get into my, my nitpicky parts about Braun and Tyrion talking about how they hadn't ta- they hadn't you know been reunited. Well, yeah, you were. You you talked to each other when you reunited with Jamie. But let's not get into that. Let's, I mean, let's, let's, they uh, didn't talk. Let's and not also, t- I I think that like Braun just got a message from Tyrion to set it up. I don't uh, think they actually talked beforehand or anything. Anyway, I what I liked about this episode, we got into it. We got what I liked about this episode was there were a lot of great moments between characters. That we've been waiting for, specifically the Hound and Brienne. Um, you know, it had been alluded to before, especially in Beyond the Wall, about Brienne of fucking Tarth. Uh, you know, she's the one that almost killed the Hound, and there they are walking side by side, having a uh, a small parental moment about Arya, how nobody really needs to protect her. I thought that was they pretty were, cool. They were so cute. They were so cute. They really were. They really were. And then, you know. I like Danny's entrance. I, I like the fact that Danny made everybody wait. And then when, when Drogon lands in the dragon pit, he crawls down from the top of the wall like, fuck you, my brother just got killed. I don't trust any of you bitches. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and then, of course, I love the fact that Cersei was put off by the fact that that that, that Danny was late. Uh, Lena Headey really sold this episode. She was great. Lena Headey and and Peter Dinklage sold their scenes together. Um, and Dan, I think you would agree with that. You liked the fact that that she was upset about Danny being late. Well, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I mean, um, I think of the the dragon pit scene kind of as the small scale equivalent of the giant battle scenes they do. Only kind of the fireworks and the impressive stuff is more. The small moments and a little direct horror flourishes and the dialogue and character interaction 
Like, it's as complex in its way as a big battle, but it's just all these characters coming together. It was a thrill to see them all in the same place. And I was so glad that Jeremy Podeswell, who directed it, found all those little moments where just, like, you see Cersei watching Brienne, watching Jamie in that moment, and you see oh, yeah. the Hound eyeing the mountain, and you see Theon, like, giving the eye to you, Ron. And there's all these little succulent moments you just watch, and you're, and, you're, and you're having fun because you know what's going on in those looks and in those little, little exchanges of words that are just fun. And Cersei, yeah, Cersei was the highlight. She was what held it all together for me. We, like had, a, just, we, had, a, we had a precursor to Game Bowl. You, you know, you know yes. what's you know what's uh, coming for you, brother. I thought that was awesome that he addressed his brother. I thought it was um, like, and I watched it again. At first, I was like, "Oh, come on, no clue game ball." And I went back and watched it again. The mountain actually comes out from behind Cersei and meets the Hound, so they stand toe to toe and they're talking to each other. And he recognizes his brother. And then I, I, I liked that little back and forth. Well, there was no talking on the mountains far, but there was a lot of staring and uh. I, I love the fact that when when Euron's trying to belittle uh, Tyrion, Beyond Beyond steps in with that wasn't even a good joke, you know, like <laughs> better dwarf jokes than that. Yeah, yeah there were better there were better than that, and there were you're right, there were a great a lot of great moments. I also love Kyburn's creepiness, like whenever the white <laughs> he was the, great. the white shows up and uh, gets his hand chopped off. <laughs> the first thing Kyburn does is walk over and pick up the hand like, I've got a place for this. <laughs> I loved it, man. I loved the entire thing at uh, the Dragon Pit. Uh, Richard, how did you feel about the, the Dragon Pit uh, as a whole? Uh, I pretty much agree with Dan and you. I, I think uh, uh, it was wonderfully orchestrated. I, <clears throat> I had a little trouble at the end with everybody believing Cersei when she came back and and uh, had sort of made up with everybody and announced she was now going to join the group. I, I, I thought they knew her better than that, and probably they won't trust her as far as they can throw her any, afterwards anyway. But uh, I thought it was, it was really fun. I thought that um, all the little looks that everybody talked about in the moments, they really played it well. And my gosh, Game of Thrones has a lot of good actors on it, and they, yeah. they really got to get out there and show their stuff a little and, and act without talking a lot of the time, like, like you guys have said. We may never see an ensemble cast like this again, and not. And if we do, it'll be a long time, because over seven seasons, and however many years they've been together, they have really cultivated a phenomenal cast. And uh, it's going to be a sad thing to watch them go in season eight. But Corey Smith, <clears throat> what were your thoughts on the Dragon Pit? Um, I mean, it's you know, it's hard to disagree with anything y'all said. Um, it was, you know, it was clearly the centerpiece of the episode. If you if you take away, you know, Viserion and the Wall later on, but you know, they they spent a lot of time on on this whole sequence, and I think it paid off. I th- I liked, like y'all said, all the little small moments. I loved Brienne and the Hound uh, talking about Arya. Um, you know, that was such a it, it, it wasn't, you know, they're there discussing the future of the Seven Kingdoms and all that, so it wasn't like the big game-changing moment, but it was, you know, and I think those are the kind of moments that we really love from Game of Thrones is those two characters who literally tried to kill each other, and, you know, as far as Brienne was concerned, she succeeded, and yet when they meet each other again, there's no animosity. 
Um, there's just a, a shared love of, of Arya. And I also like that there is a recognition by both of them that Arya no longer really needs either of them. Um, that she's perfectly capable of protecting herself and she's grown beyond, you know, needing them. So I, I like the entire sequence. Um, and you know, the small moments were, were probably what made it work best for me. Dan, break down the, um, Cersei Tyrion conversation as quickly as you can. Uh, and by, by this, I mean, you already believe that she's pregnant and that's fine. Um, but what, what do you what convinced her to come back out you think i think that oh i probably think Tyrion was like what well, you you're pregnant you do know that when the ice zombies get down there they will kill you they will kill your kid and you traditionally like your kids quite a lot so how about you help us huh why do you help us <laughs> and then she decided to about um richard what you said about them Maybe shouldn't believe her so quickly. Like I, I kind of get it. Like they did bring a zombie all the way down to King's Landing, and they, they showed her kind of irrefutable proof this is really happening. Which, granted, isn't the same thing as showing a whole zombie army, but it is something. I, I also really, I, I thought that they sold it because <laughs> Cersei did agree to to go with them and help them, but she did it begrudgingly, which I loved. Mm-hmm. She was like, uh, "Yeah, I'll do it." Even though I have no assurances that you won't fight me afterwards, I'm just that great a person. Which in the most Cersei way ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 that's what allows them to kind of accept, like, okay, she's not happy, which means they must have compromised because no one here is uh, pleased with themselves, and she's salty, but she'll come along with it. Like it would have been way more suspicious if she had said, "Of course I'll help you. I'm here to do whatever. I'm totally for humanity." But, yeah, the, fact, but the fact that she cloaked it with. I'm only doing this because I have to, you jackasses. Like, sort of helped it go down a little bit for me. That, that, that's what I took from it. Does that, um, oh, go ahead, Dan. No, that's okay. I'm pretty much done. Oh, no, I was just saying, does anybody want to tell a listener why uh, my friend, uh, the one I told you about who I had dinner with, who's unsullied, he thought it was very odd that Braun would announce that he and uh, uh, Pod were going to go off and have a beer. I have an answer for that. <laughs> you guys want to tell people who might not know that there was a reason for that moment? Lena Headey and uh, Jerome Flynn cannot be in the same scene together. They, that is in their contract. Uh, they used to date, and they had a bad breakup. And so they could not be in the same scene together. And that is why when um, everybody showed up, Brian said, hey, let's go have a drink together, Pod. There's your answer. I love that. That was awesome. So weird. That happened. <laughs> so amazing, though. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> Just that, reminds you that, like – we put so much kind of importance on this, and it's like we look at the show, we analyze it. It's just made by people who may have throw hissy romantic fits in, in their spare time. <laughs> Not that I don't love those two. I, th- I think they're great. But at the end of the day, this is just a show been put together by actors and producers, all of whom have their own personal lives, and it affects it in that fun kind of way. It is a, a really fun factoid. Well, um, let's move on to boat sex. Let's get right to boat sex. Um, ranking <laughs> this is a really bad thing to say. Ranking um, sexual scenes on Game of Thrones. <laughs> How do we rank boat sex, Dan? We got first of all, we got a really steamy moment between the two, and then we got John's 
Apparently perfect ass. I mean, remarkable buttocks. Remarkable, stupendous, like stupendous butt. Yeah, even I, even even I was like, God damn, that's a sexy. It's ass. a lot of lunges, a lot of squats. I yeah. think it was his real butt. No, it's his real butt. He's talked about it. But 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 but. Um, <laughs> you you, you want to rank Game of Thrones sex scenes? I mean, most of them they're often like uncomfortable or non consensual. So that one has to be very near the top. Like it's good just, point. That's a really good point. <laughs> I mean, what what Game of Thrones sex scene has been has been pleasant for both parties? Masandai and uh, Grey Worm. Yeah, although that was alter- which is a good one. Although that was kind of an alternative sex scene. <laughs> um, and I guess we, the one that was off screen was Ron and his magic dick. I apparently that was great for everybody. See, but that was awful because that was just exploitative and ridiculous and comic and kind of silly to me to this day i I never i never liked that scene i thought it was always stupid um i might say it's probably the best sex scene they've ever had both because it was well shot and john's butt is beautiful um and you know that they 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 are having a real connection which is cool um or if, if you buy some theories john is deeply undercover and going to uh to trick danny to get her on his side but i won't go there um, uh, I, I, I thought it was filmed well. It, it wasn't. It wasn't pornographic, but I, you know, it, it focused in on the passion they were having. And also, the other great thing about it is, <laughs> as we watch these two lovers consummate their attraction, we learn that they're related, <laughs> which I love the timing of that so much. By the way, can we just say that? Perfect. Can we just say that most of Brand's moments have been? Where uh, family members have been having sex. I don't know how other people feel about this, but he's he's watched John have sex. I'm, I'm, we don't know that he watched John have sex, but John had sex while he was talking. He saw Rhaegar and Lyanna uh, get married and have uh, baby John, and then he watched uh, Santa's really horrible night, and he complimented on how good she looked that night. Um, and not to mention Cersei and Jamie. Cersei and Jamie, that's true. He climbed the yeah. tower. He's, He's probably got the worst idea about – he has the worst concepts of sex probably of anybody on the show. You know, So, yeah, <laughs> poor guy. Um, but, yeah, no, I thought it was a good sex scene. I thought it was tastefully done. I don't really want to get into why Tyrion was lurking in the shadows. There's theories. I don't buy into any of them. I even was a proponent of one of the theories, and now I think it was just stupid. Tyrion's probably just got like, eh. You know, this could be bad. This could be really bad for us, but it's happening, so I'm just gonna gonna sulk in the shadows and drink. But um, let's go to Winterfell, guys, and let's watch. Let's let's talk about the fall and demise of the master manipulator, uh, Littlefinger, Peter Baelish. Um, I thought this scene, out of all the scenes at Winterfell this season, was done probably besides like the Brienne Arya duel. This was probably one of my favorite scenes at Winterfell this season because it has all the lords and soldiers lined up along all the walls. It brings in Arya, and it's a, and she she Sansa is sitting next to Bran. So you have the Starks, the high table where they belong, and she starts to accuse. And you'd think for a second, I, I didn't because I'm an idiot and I read spoilers. But you start to you start to think for a second, oh God. Arya's being accused of all these bad things, and then Sophie Turner, as Sansa, does this subtle head turn and goes, how do you answer for your crimes, Lord Baelish? And boom, 
Peter Peter Baelish loses his shit, and this is where Aiden Gillen really shined. He went from being the most composed master manipulator to a sobbing mess in the matter of seconds because he knew he was caught. Dan, speak to speak to this scene. Um, I mean, it was by far the best scene in this plot line. I mean, it was. It it was it it was well done scene. Um, you know, Sansa's. Of course, that moment, it's, it's so Perry Mason, like, how do you answer, Lord Baelish? And, <laughs> and that was a good time. Um, Arya, the brutality of Arya cutting his throat so quickly was great. Yeah. Um, and again, the, the highlight was probably Aiden Gillen's performance, because we, we, we see this guy who, who we know is, you know, all about manipulation, all about climbing the ladder. But at the end of the day, we got to remember, this is the love-struck kid who got beaten in a duel by a Stark because he loved Catelyn so much. And, and that set just, him on a path of revenge against every Stark ever. Right. But at the end of the day, he's still that kid. He's still at, at bottom. He's still someone who just wants the pretty Stark girl to love him. And when it comes down to the final moment, I think he reverted back to that kind of pubescent love-struck teenager he was and just kind of it, it all came out. I thought that was good. I wish the show had highlighted that a little more during the build-up to this. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the scene was really good. I think it could have been, like, great if the plot line had been handled a little more carefully. And we already talked about how that could have been done and why we didn't like the way it was handled up to this point. But the final bit, yeah, I, I enjoyed the final bit. Yeah, and I, could, I couldn't agree with Dan more on all of that. Yeah, I, um, Corey Smith, I was going to ask you, um, the, the, the way Arya just so brutally and so quickly cut his throat left absolutely nothing to be – like there was no interpretation, right? Like cut his throat, it's over, it's done. Like a lot of scenes in, in Game of Thrones, there's always like – there's always some one-liner, like, you know, even though Littlefinger didn't cut Ned Stark's throat, he did put the dagger to his throat and told him not to trust him. Uh, there's always some one-liners, like, Sir Ellen, bring me his head, you know, all kinds of these things. And she just walks up and slashes his throat, and it's over. And Aiden Gillen really just, man, falls to his knees, and for a second, I nearly almost felt bad for Littlefinger. For the, just just because of his the fact that he became a, a crying ball of mess, did you did you have any empathy for a little finger in that in that scene? I did, and I think we've all kind of said that the scene worked really well in a vacuum. It, you know, it was a great scene, um, and Gillen, yeah, he killed it. I think the first time he kind of he cracks a little bit um, when he talks about loving Catelyn that. That rang a little bit false uh, to me, but then when he when he really gets into it, when he you know talks about how he loves Sansa, that that struck me as very genuine. I think he really did, and I think I don't think that was him trying to you know play a card or you know ri- he put all his cards he put all his cards on the table. Then that was yeah, good. I think that was, I think that was genuine emotion there, which was pretty rare. Uh, from a character like Littlefinger. And yeah, I think Aiden Gillen 
killed that scene. Um, and I, I read afterwards that that was uh, the first scene that they filmed um, in, yeah, in it his, was it was one of the early scenes. It was one of the first scenes they filmed. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, yeah, that he filmed. So I mean, they they knocked it out of the park. I think the whole thing worked, except when you consider the lead up to it. You know, and so yeah, I wish they would have done it a little bit better. Um, I do sort of recognize, like if we had if we had known, you know, they, they there was that report that they filmed the scene between Sansa and Bran. Uh, where Bran kind of tells all of Littlefinger's secrets, and they didn't include that. That that would have robbed the scene of a little bit of the dramatic effect because we would have known going into it what was about to happen. Right. Um, but still, you know, I wish they would have done it a little, the lead up a little bit better than maybe on the Blu-ray what, we'll get that. And maybe yeah. maybe Ghost will be in the room whenever Sansa comes to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> kind of cool if, like, Ghost was at the table with Sansa. Oh, I know, right? And like, a Bond villain as she read off the rights to Littlefinger. No, Littlefinger, I expect but, you to die! And I did, I did like, though, that she cut his throat instead of stabbing him or in the heart or, or something like that, because obviously Littlefinger's weapon was his voice, was his, you know, his speech, his oh, manipulation. So I did like... I. I don't know if that's what they were going for, but there was some, I, I, I thought some irony there of him getting his throat cut so that he couldn't talk anymore. You it's know, interesting like you bring that point up because uh, Gillen in an interview said that he was going, his character was trying to say something, but he will never reveal what, that, what he was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? But yeah, I, I do like that that's how he was killed instead of, you know, being stabbed or, or whatever, beheaded or whatnot. Um, I think that was a, a nice little twist. It was good. It was good. And then we move from the Winterfell where everything is happy. Um, John and his new girlfriend slash aunt slash probably baby mama is on those, on their way to Winterfell. Um, and uh, oh, 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 Dan, you bring up a great point. Theon redeemed himself uh I oh think, yes! I, I think Theon started the redemption of himself when he stood up to his uncle at the Dragon Pit meeting by making that comment about his joke wasn't that funny. But you're right, Theon beat the shit out of after getting the, the shit beat out of him by the Ironborn, and by winning that fight, he and surviving, he got the rest of the Ironborn on his side. Um, and he redeemed himself. And Corey Smith brings up another great point here. We're looking at chat. Theon and John had a really tender moment. Dan, what did you think about that moment between Theon and John? And does it speak to a lot of people thought that it also spoke to the fact that John's a Stark and a Targaryen as well? Did really? Did they? Yeah, um, a, lot, a lot of people thought that. Like a lot of people think it mirrors that. Like Theon is a great joy and a Stark. Only because he was a ward of the Starks, he, and Ned Stark was basically his father, and Jon Snow was raised as a Stark, as Ned Stark being his father, and really he's a Targaryen. I mean, I, I thought it was purposeful that they, they drew the parallel between those two characters, and that they were both of the Stark family, but not of the Stark family. Right. Like you said, Theon was a ward, Jon was a bastard, and really was a secret Targaryen king, bastard, whatever. But the point is, is, is they that both- secret with a K? Secret Targaryen? 
No, it is he's an actual target. He 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 gets he gets the C because he's an actual. Okay, target. all right. Everyone else gets a K because they're fake. Um, I mean, so it it drew that parallel. They both grew up at Winterfell, but not really of Winterfell. So like they they had this connection kind of all along was what I liked, and it, they finally kind of brought it out in this scene, and we saw how much they really did have in common, how they kind of had the same opportunities. Like, even Theon could have joined the Night's Watch at one point, mm-hmm. but he, he opted not to. Um, John rode to help Rob back in the day and was called back. Theon had the chance to help Rob, ended up betraying him. Mm-hmm. John honors Ned. Theon betrays Ned. And they both go down this diverging path. But at the end of the day, Ned had a huge impact on both of them. And they're going to try to do the right thing. And John brought that out in Theon, and I, th- I thought it was a very good scene. I thought the acting was tremendous from both of the leads, especially Alfie Allen, who really, really has a knack for um, suggesting broiling inner turmoil. Mm-hmm. Like, just look in his eyes, and you just know there's like a sea, a raging storm of feeling going on down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a powerful moment. And it, 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 it's not that Theon needed redemption, exactly. Uh, he's, he's such a complicated character. I, I, I think it's more that, uh, I mean, he, he did abandon Yara. It was PTSD. But that, but yeah, but I mean, it, it, it's very excusable, at least looking at it from a 2017 perspective from, because of PTSD. I mean, it, it's more like that this is the next step in his slow, slow crawl back from Ramsey. Like, we just thought that he was better than he was back when he was on that boat in the second episode of the season. But he wasn't. He, he was still kind of back at Winterfell in a cell, having his the skin of his fingers torn off. To be honest, the show really played down how much torture he, 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 he suffered at Ramsey's hands. Not only after he left – yeah, not after he left the Dreadfort and became Reek at Winterfell – he was treated awfully at Winterfell. Yeah, like he got the skin flayed from his fingers, and he was—he had to like, you know, do all kinds of awful things. He had to service uh, Jane Poole, who was under the guise of Arya, with his tongue. This is in the book you're talking this about. This is in the book. Yeah, like the show downplayed the torture that, and it, and it was awful enough on the show. But you're absolutely right. The Theon reverted to Reek because. We don't really get how far. He never really stopped being Reek. He never really stopped. Not being, really. He never really stopped because we don't really get how far Ramsey really got into his head. Well, I mean, I mean to be fair, we saw a lot more of the torture on the show than they showed in the books. Like we weren't with him at the Dreadfort at all in the books. So I think we got a good idea of uh, how Reekified he was. But you know, open to uh, interpretation, man. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're right. Probably so. I don't know. You're usually right. I'm usually wrong. Uh, Richard Preston, you liked the moment on the beach. That guy, Harag, the guy who played, I guess the guy's name was Harag on the show. Um, he, he, he said that he wants to come back to, uh, season eight. I, I, I don't know if he was dead. I don't know if Theon beat the shit out of him and left him to, for, for dead or if he's still alive. Uh, but you liked, you liked the scene on the beach. Uh, yeah, I love the scene you guys have been talking about and the scene on the beach. Um, when we did our little Emmy nomination, I, I nominated uh, Alfie Allen for the season, almost not entirely, but very much based on those two scenes. 
And I rarely get choked up and want to cry during any TV show. But that sequence between the Dragonstone throne room with John and then him fighting it out on the beach, I, would, I just about had it. Um, <laughs> just about bawling. But I, I, I think that in the scene with John, which I think both of them did a magnificent job, job acting, as, as was mentioned by Dan, I think, um, I think Theon, for the first time in his life, is certain about something. I don't think he was ever sure of anything. And he he realizes what he has to do. And one thing about his acting, too, that he does a lot is, if you notice, when he puts his hands down to his side, his fingers are always splayed. Yeah, He's I love that. Nervous, yeah, splaying of his hands. And anyway, when he gets down to the beach, um, he, he gets into a fight that he knows he has to get him into that he knows he can't win. And I think it's one of those great sequences where the guy who's supposed to win doesn't because the other guy just simply has to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought it was a really great pair of scenes. And uh, yeah, and I also did the article on on the guy who Theon beat up, and he he wanted to come back as you mentioned, so he didn't do the. He said he didn't do the dead eyed stare into space after he was laying on the sand. <laughs> so there's a possibility they could bring him back. But yeah, I just think that Theon's storyline is is so terrible and beautiful at the same time. And I think that that scene, I think by the time he staggers out into the ocean and puts that salt water on his face, he's he's finally become what I think he's supposed to be, which or knows what he's supposed to do, which is now he's he's got to go get Yara. And I think I think Reek is gone. I think that's a great point. Well put. Well put. Um, now let's finish the episode with uh, Tormund and Beric on the wall. Um, you know, they're, they're out there talking about how far down it is, and then we get uh, the horn blast from the Night Watch and Night's Watch, and we we see the Night King's army walking out from the forest. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, when we did this podcast earlier uh, for this episode, I thought the Viserion was super fucking fast. Did anybody else catch that? Did it feel like Viserion was like on jet fuel? I just think it was the camera angle. Because goddamn, like, it, it was it was just set up so he came screeching by. I don't think we were actually supposed to think he was moving like a seven forty seven. I think it was just the way it was kind of situated. Okay, with the fake CGI camera is my take on it. I mean, he just he just he attacks so fast, and the screech is so di- to me the screech was different. It's an undead screech than it is. It definitely was. I like that too. I like they made the yeah, difference on that. The and then and then and then you know, obviously the white fire, ice fire. I don't know what kind of fire it is, it, but it's enough to melt ice or bring a wall down. Um, the biggest question from this is as we watch the Night King's army. March through the big wall. Is did Tormund and Beric survive? I've seen both sides of the argument. One side of the argument says Beric and Tormund were on the side that didn't fall. But if you watch both sides, the side close to the sea and the side that survived, there was a lot of tumbling down. And I don't know how far those two escaped. I don't know how far back they got. And, uh, you know, I just think it would be a really, it would be terrible. I would hate it so much. I think it would be a really fun way to start Season 8 to see Undead, Tormund, and Beric walking through the Night King's army. I think it would be hilarious. But, uh, I don't know. Um, wrapping up this episode, and of course, obviously the podcast, 
I would like to ask each of you what you thought of season seven as a whole. Um, you could com- compare it to other seasons if you wish. Uh, give it a rating if you wish. I don't care. But Dan, I'll start with you. Season seven, how did it sit with you altogether? Season seven, looking back, was pretty clearly part one of a big two-part season. Oh. I mean, I, I think that's kind of obvious looking the way thing. Like, not a lot of major characters died. There, there wasn't. There was a sense that the story is still building. Like, you know, season six all led up to the Battle of the Bastards. Season five all led up to um, Stannis getting defeated outside Winterfell and Cersei's walk and Jon getting killed, obviously. Season four led up to Tyrion killing Tywin and leaving. There was none. There was no big resonant character moment like that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the closest we got was probably Jamie leaving Cersei, which was really great, and I, and I enjoyed that moment quite a lot. And the wall falling is more something that we all knew had to happen because the plot has to move forward like that, and we've got to get to this big thing. So, and, and, and that's fine. I mean, that's the way that a lot of prestige shows go out, is kind of having a giant two-part final season. Mm. Um, it, it, it did leave us with a little bit of a sense that... Not a ton happened, even though it did. There was definitely a lot of movement. Olena dying was a great moment. The wall coming down is huge for the plot. So they left Jamie, yada, yada, yada. But um, it, it, it feels like it's, it's part one and part two still to come, which would be fine if they hadn't um, kind of mussed up those episodes five and six a bit. I think those, I think we needed one more episode. One more episode could have cleared up those Everything. pitfalls in there, especially in those. I mean, generally speaking, I think the first four were pretty solid. I mean, even though there was like, oh, there's some fast travel, and it, it, it was some uh, a few plot holes, but they were excusable plot holes to me. And like, then I was Alan Taylor got willing to live with them. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's all Alan Taylor's fault. Please come on, get <laughs> the fuck out of it. Um, it. It was those two that I think you, you, we, I just need a little more to kind of patch over the rough spots. So um, I enjoyed watching the season. Looking forward to seeing. It, it, it's just not complete quite yet, and I'm looking forward to uh, to the final push. And if it wasn't. And we're we're still hearing 2019 for the premiere, right? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing official. That's just we're hearing things. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's always been like people are asking HBO, "Is it gonna is it gonna be 2019?" Like we can't say anything, and then we just assume HBO said it's 2019. They haven't, to be yeah, fair. Right. Right. So we're not 100 percent sure yet. But bring it on whenever it is. I'm ready for it. Uh, Richard Smith, where would you rate Season 7 as a whole? Richard Smith? Richard Preston, good God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, Richard Preston. Um, uh, Gosh, I I think I pretty much uh, would go along the, the lines that Dan's talking about, I think. It was fine. It was a good season. I, I do agree with the, the idea that you got a general sense that this is the, the jab before the roundhouse punch. Right. So they sort of sealed up a few minor storylines. They've gotten a lot of people together and meshed the groups, um, which I think maybe a little too quickly. You know, maybe we could have had eight or nine episodes for them to 
to kind of get everything into position. Um, but overall, I think it was a good season. I think they, they accomplished uh, what they set out to do. Um, and I guess we'll just sort of have to put some of those little glitches that we're not happy with behind us. Um, and because if you really feel like it, you know, a lot of those big story points that we've been waiting to kind of click into place fell into place. Don and, you know, John and Daenerys are together, the walls down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, you know, I don't think it's going to ever be my favorite season. There's a couple of episodes in it I love. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, I'd kind of say it's probably going to land somewhere kind of, if you're going to add stack up, not counting the eighth season, cause we don't know, but probably somewhere under the halfway point for me, if I'm at the end, if I'm going to stack up my seasons, I think it'll probably be in the lower half of my favorite overall seasons. Um, and in one last point, just in defense of my boy, Grey Worm, I did look up on Wikipedia what medieval castration involved. And, okay. uh, and uh, generally speaking, the stones go, but not the pillar. Ah, he, so our boy, he may still be in business. I don't know. Well, well <laughs> done, Grey Worm. Yeah, we hope. Maybe that's, what, sake. Maybe that's why sand. they call him Grey Worm. You never know. Um, let's, Corey Smith, what was your thoughts on Season 7? I know that, for me, Dan made a great point about being a lead-up to Season 8, like a, a Part 1 to Season 8. I, I, I kind of feel that, but give me the real. How, how do you feel about Season 7? Um, you know, I, I'm, on, I'm on the fence. I, I think I agree with Richard. I would put it in my lower half. Um, I'd probably put it above seasons five and two, but that would that probably be it. Um, I think a lot of the other seasons were far superior, and they were a lot more um, even and consistent. Um, I think we've talked about how you know we were we were missing a little bit in this season. You know, um, this season felt a lot. I think we've touched on it. And I, this season felt a lot like, you know, if you if you just read the the bullet points of this season, it would sound really great. Right. Um, you ha- you you have some cool things that happen. You have some some great moments. You know, if you read a moment like, okay, say Tyrion and Jamie reunite and they have a, a frayed conversation uh, you know as a bullet point that sounds great okay we're gonna get a we're gonna get a reunion between John, uh Tyrion and Jamie. but then when we actually see it, it it leaves us wanting a little bit more and i think that's kind of the theme of this season overall um we were wanting a little bit more we didn't get um some of the moments we were hoping for um and and you know that's what we watch game of thrones for um uh-huh. The battles are great. Um, they do really good job of that stuff. But we watch this show for the small moments. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones has attracted the audience it has for the small character moments um, that they build towards over seasons and seasons. Um, and I think that what we really were disappointed in in this season is that we were kind of robbed of those moments um, in, in a lot of cases, we still got some, some very good ones. Um, you know, and we, we talked about all those, but there were plenty that we were missing. And I think that was our, most people's problem with the season is that it felt rushed um, and that we were, you know, that we didn't get those moments that we wanted. 
And for me, maybe the most frustrating part of it is that it seems to be self-inflicted by the by Benioff and Weiss. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, all the seasons up to this. I mean, it, it's not to say that the show is not a good show. It's an amazing show. But it seemed like a lot of the stuff that they did, there wasn't any reason for why they did it. Um, you know, cutting it down to seven episodes and a couple of them being, you know, you know, the last two episodes of the season were basically three episodes worth of screen time. Mm-hmm. You know, so why couldn't we have had eight, nine, maybe the ten episodes of even, you know, uh, consistent the filler um, episodes, setup episodes, right, and and that would have given us those moments. Um, it, and it, it seems like that they chose not to, and I, I don't understand why. Um, there wasn't any budget concerns. There wasn't HBO was screaming for more episodes. Um, I mean, yes, they left Benioff and Weiss to do what they wanted, but I'm, HBO wouldn't have argued if they'd said they wanted more episodes. So it, it just it's a it's a little frustrating because it seems like what they you know they chose to go this route and it didn't work a hundred percent. So like I said, I put it down towards the bottom, um, just just above seasons two and five, which were um, you know my least favorite um, seasons of the show. But again, not to say that it was a total terrible season because it had like Richard said, it had a lot of good stuff in it, but. Um, it definitely was on the lower end of, of my seasons. I, I'm hesitant to rank season seven just yet because I usually do this to myself. I'll, I'll give an instant ranking, ranking as soon as the season's over and either, it'll be the best season ever or I fucking hated this season. That's how it was with season five. And so I'm going to compare season seven to season five. Um, we got some great moments in season five. We had, uh, hard home in season five. But, you know, we also had the Sand Snakes. Well, in Season 7, we had the Loot Train Battle and the Frozen Lake Battle, but we also had Winterfell. There were some great uh, some great things that happened in both seasons, but with Season 5, I instantly hated it, and I just shot it down every chance I got. And then I went back and rewatched it, and I didn't hate it as much as I did on their second rewatch and on the third rewatch uh, uh, a few months later or like a year later, I didn't hate it even, I hated it even less. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to reserve judgment on season seven is where I put it, like where I rank it. I know it definitely does not rank with season six is season six, four or even one, but it, to me, season seven, I'm going to compare it to five. Dan, you had one more thing to say before we close out the podcast. Uh, hit us with what you got. Just, uh, real fast, just uh, about Corey's talking about why they might have gone a little quicker. I mean, I, I do want to point out that, A, if they, like, they they were never going to win. You know that if they had more episodes, people would, com- people would complain about filler episodes, about them <laughs> dragging. Like, th- 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 there is no way to win when you're this popular. I, I do truly believe that. And it smashed also, every ratings record. Every episode smashed a new record. Yeah, yeah they're, they're fine. Um, I also want to point out that, I mean, we talk about, you know, HBO being willing to give as many episodes as they want. Like, the show still is made in the real world. I mean, they still do have to take a lot of time to do this. And if they had more, it, it, I mean, 
this season arrived late. It would have arrived even later. Maybe maybe it wouldn't have even arrived yet. Maybe we would still wait until 2018 to get it. And, 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 and keep in mind, like, usually every season has one big battle, you know, Castle Black, Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards. They had three enormous battles this year. The boat, the boat, the sea battle, the blue train attack, and the battle on the frozen lake. So, like, even though, yes, HBO will give them the resources they want, they do still have to make this show. And they only, they're, even though they have a lot of money, they have a limited amount of money. Mm. And they can't pull off complete and utter miracles. Hmm. So there is that to consider. Good point. Uh, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but I also think that when you talk about how much, you know, they filmed essentially 10 episodes worth of material. And so I I don't know that they necessarily would have needed that much more money or that much more time that would have affected things um, you know, greatly. And most of the things, like I said, most of the things I think we were wanting were smaller moments. I don't know that we were like, oh my gosh, we felt, you know, the battle beyond the wall was, you know, it was kind of quick. I wish it had been twice as long and they would have spent twice as much money. I think Mm -hmm. we were more complaining about the smaller things, which I think would have been fairly, you know, economical to, to film. So I don't know. I mean, you, you could be right. I just, to me, it seemed like they they chose a route that they didn't necessarily have to, um, and it didn't work very well. But who knows? Lots of opinions. Lots of different opinions on this season. And I think that once people have a chance to go back and rewatch, they'll be more cemented, and there will be definitely lines drawn in the sand. But that's it for our podcast tonight. Uh, for myself, for Richard, for Corey Smith, and Dan Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for listening. Uh, Take the Black is probably going to take a few weeks off, and then once we have some filming news, which, by the way, Amelia Clark, uh, Daenerys Targaryen, has already gone blonde, so maybe she's getting ready to start filming some scenes as Daenerys Targaryen for Season 8. We don't know, but we're getting really, really, really excited for it. So uh, next time you hear us, next time we're back, we'll be talking about Season 8 filming news. So thanks for listening this season. Thanks for uh, putting up with all of our lengthy podcasts. This has been a two-hour podcast. And um, we shall talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening, and Valar Magulis.